This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Imagine you're on a beautiful desert island. You've unplugged from the digital world. No cell phone, no Twitter, no Facebook, no radio, and no TV. You can only take with you five books. Which five books would you choose and why? These are the questions we're asking the faculty on Season 3 of Office Hours. Joining us on the island today is the Reverend Mr. Joel Kim, Assistant Professor of New Testament at Westminster Seminary, California. He's co-editor of Always Reformed, Essays in Honor of W. Robert Godfrey. And that's available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Joel, and welcome to the island. Hi, thanks for having me. So you're on a ship, maybe you're on a cruise ship giving up a series of lectures. I like the cruise ship much better than just a ship of nowhere. Okay, not a freighter. You're not stowed aboard a freighter. And you ran aground or something bad happened and you washed ashore on a desert island all by yourself. You have with you, we're stipulating that everyone is allowed their English Bible, their Greek New Testament, their Hebrew Old Testament, and Steve Baugh asked for the Septuagint. <laughs> But beyond that, you can have five books with you. So no Kindle at all. I've been waiting for someone to say... 3G is everywhere, so I'm I'm thinking that it might actually work out okay. I've been waiting for someone to ask for a Kindle or an iPad. So if you want to say that, you can. I'm curious as to where you're going to recharge it. I'm going to carry my solar panels anywhere Uh, and so that I can... And apparently all the faculty have packed their books in a watertight, floatable suitcase. That's right. It's a ready-made raft. And so you float it on this suitcase to the island. Well, we grew up with Gilligan's Island, so we have to be prepared for everything. That's true. And that was just a three-hour cruise. That's right. Who knows how long we're going to stay. Do you think I could get you to sing a, or hum a bar from Gilligan? No, not not at all. You you will not but you make are... me or pay me enough to do so. <laughs> but you are the professor. You know what? I may fit that character, at least in terms of, you know, no, no, it doesn't fit at all. I'm the, I'll be the most useless person there, <laughs> for sure. I, yeah, we're all going to wish, I think, that we had Josh Van E with us, because he chose, his first work was the U.S. Uh, Army Survival oh, Manual. Oh, that's so smart. It's brilliant, isn't yeah. it? So, I wouldn't even have thought of it. <laughs> exactly. Well, we're all typical nerds. Okay, so what five volumes? I want to sound semi-intellectual as I talk about these books, but at the same time, focus on those books that I might actually enjoy. But one of them that I would include, not only just because I do what I do, but I really do enjoy is uh, Calvin's Institutes. I remember hearing about the book quite a bit growing up and being encouraged by others to actually read the book. But not until I went to college, we had a book reading group that met on a regular basis. And these five people chose, at least for one year, to read through the Institutes together. And so that was my first exposure to it. I think my hesitancy prior was the thought that it was going to be quite difficult. But it turned out to be a fun reading, not because the concepts were less than heady. I mean, there are plenty for us to chew on. But at the same time, he was much more approachable than I was led to believe. And for me, not only to approach Calvin, but to think through his writings and also to be able to read and chew on his writings, I found that to be very beneficial and encouraging. And so perhaps I'm jaded by the fact that I had a good experience beginning to read that book as well. But I do remember thinking, that that was a fun book for me to read, reread, and perhaps even carry along as well. Fun is not a word that's commonly associated with John Calvin. So 
Can you explain that a bit? Like I said, I think there are a lot of things, perhaps the initial sense of fear and trepidation about approaching a book like that, a 16th century book, a figure well-known named John Calvin, a theological book, although perhaps not systematic as we consider it to be now. All those things were items that prevented me from thinking that that's a book that I can actually approach as a youngster. But in reading it as a college student, perhaps I was left with the impression that, first of all, this is not as difficult as I thought it was going to be. It was incredibly provocative in terms of the way John Calvin would state theological ideas and engage his opponents. And I remember thinking how practical the writing was. His section on prayer was uh, a wonderful section for a person growing up in a Reformed context who was learning how to pray, who was thinking about prayer. It was just a wonderful way of expressing prayer, theologizing about prayer, and encouraging us to pray as well. So fun, not in the sense of ha-ha fun, but fun in the sense that it went and completely defied all my expectations in terms of a book like this, encouraging me not only to read him more, encouraging me to read the period more as well. And you can get your copy of the Institutes in the bookstore. At Westminster Seminary, California. We planned that so well. edu slash bookstore. So I imagine that people may be a little hesitant to pick up the Institute. So it's encouraging that you're saying, look, you, you thought it was going to be more difficult than it was. And you actually found it as a college student now, not as a SEM student, but as a young person. You were able to pick up the Institute's begin reading book one, chapter one, section one, and it made sense. It, it resonated with you. I mean, this is not to say that this is going to be a beach reading for anyone. Nor this is not a Stephen King novel. No, 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 nor am I saying that I understood everything in it then or now, picking it up, reading it now, sections at a time. It doesn't mean that I get everything he's trying to say, and we may not even agree with everything he says in all the parts, but definitely it went against my preconceived notions about the volumes and allowed me to approach a figure historical and also a very big figure in in the upbringing that I was raised in without having this sense that he was unapproachable at all. As a younger man, even now, I I really do appreciate the way he formulated many of his thoughts. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. What's your second volume? The second book that I was thinking of, again, these are all very personal things. I haven't reread this, but I would like to reread it again, is Ned Stonehouse's biography of J. Gresham Machen. I think it's called J. Gresham Machen, a biographical memoir. I've only read it once, but it left a huge impression on my mind. I've thought about going back to it several times since. I just haven't had a chance to do so. But I read it the first year that I came to seminary. Uh, It was given to me as a gift when I graduated, as I was thinking about what seminary life would look like, as I was thinking about ministry life in general, this book, in reading it the first semester I was here, not only because of our school's history with the figure, but just in reading about him as a person and getting behind his own thinking as well, his own struggles with faith and theology, all those things were very impressionable to me. And so I remember thinking that this is a book that I would like to come back to, and I've given it out as a gift to many since, especially those who are thinking about ministry. But I haven't had a chance to revisit the book again. So that's a book that I would like to turn back to. Is there a particular passage in it that affected you? And I ask because that's one of the volumes that I remember exactly where I was. I was a, I think, first-year SEM student, and I was uh, sitting on the balcony of my apartment in the sun in January, reading 
Stonehouse on Machen. And the whole narrative was so absorbing and powerful and affecting. And there are episodes that I remember reading in Stonehouse that almost seem as if I felt like I was there and it it sort of became a part of me. Are there places in Stonehouse that affected you similarly? I can't say that I recall a passage or a paragraph in particular. I will say this. It's the general impression left is probably more powerful to me. One of the impressions that was left to me was about his relationship with his parents, particularly his mother. Now, uh, people can have different opinions about these issues, but having grown up in an Asian American culture where this kind of corporate identity is very important to me and to the culture in which I grew up. And in that, uh, my relationship with my parents, my father, who happens to be an ordained minister, and my mother, who grew up in a pastor's family, knew well what my decision entailed and where I was heading in terms of my own studies and in terms of my own thoughts. They've never actually sat and said, Joel, I want you to be a pastor. That conversation I don't think ever took place. Only when I made the decision to go into ministry did they sit down with me and had some serious conversations about what that ministry might look like. But it's that impression of parents passing on their faith and legacy of some sorts, and this kind of encouragement that Machen's mom, in particular, the attention she paid to him and the encouragement she provided, and often challenges to him as he was struggling with his own ordination vow issues as well as his uh, studies abroad, I thought were very memorable only because I felt that I can identify with not only some of the struggles, but the great blessing that the Lord has given me in terms of providing parents who were supportive and insightful and wise in the way they provided counsel and encouragement. So it's not a particular passage per se, although I I guess I can dig in and try to find some. It's that general impression of that relationship and the upbringing that I walked away with, identifying with quite a bit. I remember being affected by the account of the trial, Mm -hmm. and I'm not sure exactly why, but maybe it was the injustice of it. Because I don't know that prior to that point, I had a lot of awareness. I had some awareness of Machen, but not a lot. But Stonehouse's account of the trial was quite affecting. If the listener is interested in learning more about Machen's family, the listener can do it by listening to Office Hours. There's an Office Hours episode in the archives on Machen and his family. Nice interview with Dr. Catherine Vendrunen, who did her doctoral work on Machen's family. And you can get the Stonehouse volume also in the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California. In the beginning, God said, let there be, and there was. God the Father created through His Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God the Son is the Word. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. God the Spirit works through the preaching of the Word. For 31 years, Westminster Seminary, California has stood for the truth and reliability of God's Word. Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu, 760-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. What's your third choice? I'm going to cheat here. I was thinking back and forth about going back to some of the older readings in terms of classics or more contemporary readings, but there are a couple of books that I want to mention that I read recently. Not only have I read and enjoyed, would love to read again. 
One is a person named Anne Fadiman, and the book is called Ex Libris. It's a book about books. We don't often get a book about books anymore these days. It's a sh- very short volume. The reason for this book is primarily I just want a good laugh. Sitting on that island alone without family and friends, and all I have are books. I need some encouragement and laughter along the way. This made me laugh quite a bit. And Anne Fadiman is a writer who is, I think, freelancing. I'm not sure if she's associated with any particular outfit, but she writes this wonderful book, a nonfiction, and her reflections on books. One particular chapter I really enjoyed, it may be the first or second chapter, was that she as a writer married someone who was also a writer. And upon getting married, you know, they brought into the uh, marriage a lot of books. For some reason, they decided that they're going to keep the books separate from one another, despite the fact that there are a lot, a lot of duplicates. That was a decision they made because the way they arranged their books and the way they kept the books were quite a bit different. The way they abused and used their books were quite a bit different as well. So they decided at one point to keep them separately, but they were at a point where for space issues as well as their marital issues, they decided to combine and marry the books themselves finally after years of being married together. And she talks about the struggle that was involved, that she struggled with in issues in bringing the books together. They have different ways of using the books. They have different arrangement system and this kind of emotional angst that she felt in arranging the books together that way. Well, it's a fun way to think about books, and all her essays are like that. It's about books, words, things of writing, which I thought were quite entertaining in and of themselves. I'm looking at it here on Amazon. It's Ex Libris, Confessions of a Common Reader, and the author is Anne Fadiman, F-A-D-I-M-A-N, and it's Anne with an E. That's a really interesting choice. I wasn't aware of it, so I'm thankful that you mentioned it because this is something that interests me and that I will get hold of right away. And it leads me to this question. We live in an age, and you and I both use now electronic reading devices. You use a Kindle. I use an iPad. We won't comment on the relative merits of these things, but it... Just to correct you, I too use an iPad. I use the Kindle and the iPad, so... Oh, okay. All right. You're not better than me. I just want you to know. (laughs) Okay, so we both read texts sometimes, and I tend to read certain kinds of texts, more transient texts on the iPad. But what do you think about the future of the book? Because I resisted using things like iPads or Kindles for quite a while, even though I had people writing me saying, this is the greatest thing that I've ever had. You've got to get one of these. You'll love it. And I thought, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm, I'm a book person. And I really am. I mean, anybody who's seen my office can tell you there's no place for people. It's stuffed to the gills with books. And nevertheless, I've been won over. And so it makes me wonder, what is the future of the book? I hope books never disappear. That may be just a personal thing, as I have no basis for anything I'm about to say. All I can say is right now, with two kids who are almost six and four, who are learning how to read and enjoying books, I really don't have a whole lot of places where I can take them anymore. I remember growing up, going to libraries and sitting in and enjoying books for a long time. I remember going to bookstores and just getting a chance to browse. Uh, with the recent news of the closing of places like Borders. And in our own particular city here, Escondido, with the financial crises, not only are libraries closing, the hours are now shortened where kids don't have an opportunity to go in and see rows and rows of books and to enjoy touching them and smelling them and reading them and enjoying others as well. Because many of us can't 
afford to buy all these books. So on a very visceral and aesthetic level, I would love for the books to stay as long as possible. And to be honest, on a different level, just on a personal physiological one, my eyes are bad and I can only read backlit screens only so long. And so books are something that I personally prefer. But I got to tell you, the availability of electronic media as well as the approachableness of these resources, where 10, 20 years ago, we would not have had access to some of the things that we do that now we find in Google Books, Ebo, or any of these Kindle edition books that are coming out. And not only to have access with them, but also have the flexibility of carrying them wherever we go. I mean, our assumption right now in our fake scenario is that we can only carry few books at a time. Here, if I were stranded, if I can just have electronic and battery source, I can have hundreds, (laughs) if not thousands, Thousands of books sure. at my disposal. Such comforts are hard to just set aside anymore and yeah. jettison. And so as a teacher who want to encourage the students to purchase books, I realize that the time for just purchasing books is probably coming to an end as much as I would like to see it continue as long as possible. Maybe there'll be a distinction between sort of permanent volumes and more transient volumes. So, for example, novels and things, some of which may have lasting value, but some of which may not, may be suitable for an electronic reader. And maybe you can put permanent volumes on the electronic reader, too. But I'm hoping there will be a place for volumes of permanent value and that the libraries as institutions and books as media don't disappear entirely. Yeah, it's kind of sad because I, I would imagine at the end it would be economics. I mean, even if you have permanent volumes, will people buy them? And if there aren't enough people buying them, will publishers publish them anymore? And I don't know exactly when that will be and how long that will take, but I'm with you. I hope that books continue, although I'm not encouraged by news like public libraries becoming now primarily book depositories, mm. where it's not a place where you sit and look and examine books and read them. It's where you pick up books and leave them. And if not, it becomes a place where electronic volumes are distributed. And it's, they already do that in many libraries now anyways. It's the Netflix yeah, that's approach right. that's, to that, reading. That, well, that's, I guess, the most appropriate way of describing it. You're listening to You're Office listening Hours from Hours. Westminster Seminary, California. What's your fourth choice? Uh, Fourth choice only because if the first two were inspirational to me personally, the third was just entertaining. Fourth is a hopeful one. You know, you have to hope to get off the island one day. A book that I really like that has given me a lot of enjoyment and thought and inspired me is a book about North Korea. Again, I I hate for the listeners to think my mind is only one track, but I guess I can't deny my own upbringing and background. It's a book written by a former correspondent in Asia named Barbara Demick, and the book is called Nothing to Envy. And it was published only two or three years back, but she follows a number of former North Koreans who defected. And as a correspondent in Seoul and also in China, she traces their lives by interviewing them and recreating the lives that they lived before they defected, following some people who are high and prominent like a doctor and others who are uh, perhaps on the bottom of the economic barrel in North Korea and just recreating a scenario there that allows us, many of us who know about North Korea, who want to know about North Korea, but don't have an opportunity to visit or understand North Korea, a image of what that might be like. 
you know, my parents were born in North Korea before the Korean War, came south during the war, and, and obviously settled in South Korea after the final demarcations were done. And so there is, I guess, a side of me, having seen the Germanys reunite, that there will be an occasion in the future sometime, Lord willing, where the two sides will be reunited again. But more importantly, perhaps, from my vantage point, Pyongyang, which is now the capital city of North Korea, was at one point in time called the Jerusalem of the East. Hmm. Flourishing Christian community there uh, with a seminary there and a heavy Presbyterian presence in North Korea. I have no doubts that there are still many Christians who are there who are faithfully believing and living and worshiping from the watchful eyes of the government. But I would say that this book in a recent reading really uh, stirred my interest in it once again. And not only that, helped me to create an image in my mind of things that I've only heard about, but never actually seen or experienced. This gets to the power of books to fire the imagination. Really? I mean, this is uh, something that I would imagine experienced by many who were educated in Korea for some time. But as a child growing up during the 70s and early 80s in Korea, before our whole family came to America, we had a civics class in all the classes. Mind you, I only went up to fourth grade. So this is early stages where we had books on North Korea, books that describe what spies look like so that we can report them. Uh, what air raids might be so that we can defend ourselves, and to draw a picture of what North Korea was like, uh, poor, destitute people who are always in fear of their lives and so on. Now, uh, whether that's correct to the actual happening North Korea or not, who knows? But it, that that's what we grew up in. We were trained, and some might even say indoctrinated, mm. during the time, a heyday of Cold War, of thinking about North Korea and so, uh, and so on. For many of us now, I think it's more of an object of our prayers now that one day the country itself, which is so hermetically sealed, may open up to the gospel and the workings of the Spirit there. And so to that end, on an island, hopeful thoughts and musings about what could be I think is an interesting addition to the only five books that I can take. And it's interesting, too, that there's a missional aspect to this choice. So it's interesting that even as you're isolated on an island waiting for rescue (laughs) and and entertaining yourself in some cases, edifying yourself in, in others, that you've, in a sense, I mean, this book has two functions. It's retrospective in a sense. It connects you with your heritage, but it also has an outward-looking focus, an other focus. And in that sense, there's a missional aspect to this choice. So that's interesting. So what's your fifth choice? The fifth choice, um, this was a hard one. I mean, not that the other ones were easier, but I was trying to think what book I would like to take. And I wanted to pick a novel at this point. And I guess as a good Christian, I should pick a good book that deals with religion and culture and religion in our lives. Perhaps even go with one of the masters, Tolkien or others. And I'm sure others have done so already. And so the book that I think a novel that I want to take that I really enjoy even to this day is by Kaim Potok called The Chosen or The Promise. It really doesn't matter to me which one. Many, I'm sure, are aware of the name. Uh, He grew up as a Jew, and he was trained in philosophy, and he spent some time in Korea. His training, although academic, he always grew up with this kind of struggle of his own Jewish background with the world in which he lived, oftentimes the sceneries of 
Brooklyn and the kind of conservative and acidic and orthodox mm-hmm. Jews of that community, he depicts so beautifully, just in terms of creating an image and scenery of what it's like there. And then his own personal struggle, depicted through the characters that are found in these books, about his religion and how his religion is understood and applied in his own life. Um, He has another book called My Name is Asher Lev, Mm -hmm. which struggles with his own orthodox theology and faith and the struggle with his own artistic desires and endeavors and how they correspond together. So there are a lot of authors who deal with religion and how it affects them in a very effective way. Um, But I just, for some reason, on a very personal level, I found his writings to be both evocative, provocative, and very helpful in terms of thinking things through. Just for the listener, we're talking about Chaim Potok, and the the particular title you mentioned is The Chosen, but there are several Mm -hmm. other titles as well. Chosen was the first very first one I read. I think that may be the first novel he also wrote. I agree entirely. I know I've read The Chosen and The Promise, and those were brilliant mm-hmm. novels. Just as soon as you mentioned it, I was able to picture yeah, yeah. the neighborhood, the house, <laughs> the right. family, daily life as members of a minority community mm-hmm. in North America. I mean, there are 60 million evangelicals in North America, and there are about 500,000 confessional reformed folk of various kinds. So we constitute a kind of minority, a religious minority mm-hmm. in this country. And what I found interesting and compelling about Potok's narrative is, I think, as you suggested, the way these characters navigate a world which, A, doesn't understand them, mm-hmm in many cases, hasn't heard of them mm-hmm. <laughs> it's true. A- and how, they, how they're able to hang on to their integrity and the struggle, the difficulty of hanging on to their integrity and their identity. Right. And, and the novels aren't heavy handed. I mean, he, he's not trying to proselytize here. I mean, first of all, like you said before about the power of novels and books, it draws us into a world that the author is depicting. And these are some of the books that he's drawing a world I don't know anything about, um, but I'm captivated well, do by the world. Now, yeah, now as a result of it, but captivated by this culture in Brooklyn and this interaction between the different Jewish groups and so on, and drawing me into asking questions about, oh, what do we do about our faith? What do we do about appropriating our faith in the world around us? And the internal as well as the family struggles regarding that uh, religion and the effect of religion, I, I found that to be a very powerful novel. He passed away many years ago, almost 10 years ago now. But at the same time, I've had a chance to speak, uh, hear him speak a couple times live, and just as much a powerful speaker as he was a writer. And I've really enjoyed that interaction between fiction and religion. And I think that would be one of those books that I would carry. All these books, except for Calvin, are slim volumes, which also help the laziness on my part of not carrying big books. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.